Hey everyone, welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast where we bring the best minds in finance together. This is your host Indus. I am the Chief Savings Officer at Kolam during the week and a pilot on weekends. But enough about me. Let's talk to our very special guest. Welcome to a new episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. Today my guest is Brett Graham. Brett is the finance director at Fingerprint for Success a personal development and ai coaching platform for individuals and teams in previous roles brett has worked in publicly listed as well as early stage tech companies across london paris brisbane and sydney excited to talk to you today brett let's start with fingerprint for success or f4s as you call it what is science based coaching thank you uh, super excited to be here and, and contribute in in any way i can science based coaching good question let me let me sort of take a couple of steps back and set the scene for you so michelle is the C- ceo and founder of efres she has been a coach uh for decades she came up with a system herself uh, that she developed after many many years of experience and practice and research and this system was able to really uh narrow in on people's behaviors and inclinations she's got a certain style it's hers but in order to get across what type of behavioral coaching and testing it really is it i can say that it's quite similar to some of the behavioral tests already out there that people's hr teams are making them do um paying tens and tens of thousands of dollars to do where you where these tests tell you whether you're uh the type of person that that's um you know direct in your communication or you're very social you want people to come up and talk to you or maybe you uh, are all about the numbers and you're black and white and very procedural so the science um behind the coaching that Michelle has developed and the and the behavioral testing that Michelle has developed takes it a little bit further to the point where there's 50 different motivations and each of these motivations will give you a little bit of insight into what your inclinations are and how you might fit into the corporate environment what you need to work on what you need to pull back on so she she's she's put this or digitized this solution in the form of an ai i'm going to use the word bot i know she doesn't like that word but um, <laughs> um it is a really really intelligent robot that uh, i talk to nearly every day and every time i talk to them i get I mean, I'm quite impressed and on top of that there's there's human coaching that's kind of can accompany the AI bot program and we also help businesses in their hiring too so if they want to like candidate interviews absolutely so they if you want not not the interview side but getting candidates to sit the upfront tests so we can have a look at their so our clients can have a look at their 50 different motivations and try and understand whether or not they're going to fit into the business and fit into the team. That's pretty interesting. So we are a tech startup. We you know get people on board and most of the times at least for engineering it's easy to select people based on skills, you know, give them a programming question, the answer is usually black or white. But how do you test for can do attitude or what's now called hey growth mindset and which has like three or four different pillars? Any ideas you could share? Yeah I mean I the how the questions are structured and how they've got to where they are 
I can't answer that. But what I can say is, and I'm sure you've done psychometric testing before at some point across your career. It's very similar to that in in its intention. Um, So I can give you an example for me. This is sort of perhaps not not related to the engineering side, but, you know, where where fingerprint for success is a scale up. You know, they've just received funding from a, a household name software business who is the lead lead investor and they're a lean team right is expected with any startup slash scale up um so each person that works there needs to be able to get their hands dirty put their hands in all different areas of the business make decisions all right and that's the important bit make decisions based on what michelle calls an internal reference. Um, so that's backing yourself based on what you've seen in your experiences. So the questions that I had to answer were trying to, in, in the test before I started, um, they were trying oh, to Oh, so you took the out. same test? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We all do. Nice. And it was trying to work out what my internal reference was like because it, it was going to have to be high when, uh, when working for this business. And if it was low, then I would be much more likely to seek help from others, perhaps perhaps too much. Um, I've worked for founders before that are low on internal reference and what they've done is they've really, too early, they've brought in C-suite and experts in other areas way, way too early because their internal reference was low. So they needed to ask others and they needed the help and they, they weren't inclined to, to back themselves as much as they should have for, for a startup. See, the problem there is that, you know, cash, cash is finite particularly for companies at this level. Um, so, you know, they had some struggles there. But for an ideal founder and CEO, high internal reference is key there. So, yeah, it's, it's very similar in, in one way to a lot of the psychometric testing and behavioral testing you have out there. But the way it's broken down into the 50 different motivations just gives you that added layer of insight into things like, you know, is are you a doer? Do you like collaborating? Mm. Can you make decisions yourself or do you tend to rely on others to help make the decisions? Do you need to read something first before taking it as, as fact or do you need to experience it? Do you need to go in and test it out physically? And, yeah, and it, it, I can tell you it's very accurate. And uh, as I said, I did the test and off the back of that test, I've set goals for myself uh, and the AI coach Marley is helping me achieve those goals. Very interesting. I'm going to try it out. I saw on your website, I wasn't sure I can just, you know, create an account and start trialing it. So I'm going to do that. You know, love that uh, opener. Let's go back in time. Um, yeah. You know, you run a finance team. You've been a finance professional for a large part of your career, you know, working for large companies. You know, Rio Tinto as an example. You raised money. You did commercial strategy. How did you start? You know, take us back in time. Well, I actually started out wanting to be a lawyer. I thought that was the engine room, <laughs> believe it or not. I thought if I, if I had practiced in law, I could, after some level of experience, walk away from that and be the master of all areas of business. Luckily, I didn't go down that path because that couldn't be further from the truth. Did you get a law degree? I got, got a law degree and you know I was pretty pretty burnt out after that because I I was one of those one of those kids that actually worked really hard in school, you know, from a, from a really early age. Like I'd, I'd come home and, you know, even from the age of oh, probably nine or 10, I'd come home and sit down and lock myself away and do homework. So, yeah, I think by the time I'd finished my law degree, I, I sort of thought, you know, I haven't had time to really 
reflect on what I what I want to do and you know lots of people telling you one thing and another uh, so I went off to I went off to France and worked in a bar for two years and it, yeah that gave me ample time to reflect on what I really wanted to do and I, I spoke to a few people that were in the industry um, and I spoke to a few friends that I was at university and with and they had started their careers and I just decided that finance was the real engine room um, <laughs> because it's it's I guess they're the, the, the gatekeepers of profit and, and then from that you know everything else is linked and to do to do well in finance you, you need to understand all areas of the business because you need to understand what's driving the numbers up and down left and right and you need to talk to everyone so I guess my passion was how businesses operate what what drives them how can I think strategically and commercially to help them and the best way to do that is to to look at the numbers and from there you can trace your way back to the department or the team or the strategy to assess whether it's doing what it should be doing um, so yeah started my finance degree finished my finance degree and went to work for Rio Tinto in Brisbane I applied for quite a few graduate programs and you know having no idea what industry I wanted to work in for me it was about getting that professional experience on a, on a top tier program and I think at the time you know Rio Tinto was coming off its uh its sort of glory days um, here in Australia what year was that uh, that was 2011 so yeah it was it was having Rio Tinto on my CV was was pretty important and but in addition to that you know I was able to see up front how well oiled machine was was managed and it was my introduction to the corporate world interesting yeah so most kids when they graduate uh, with a finance degree they start with a big four and you know do audit and all sorts of other things on a on a massive scale you chose a very different path on a commercial side that was planned I had some some mentors who had kind of done a bit of both. They'd worked Big Four, they'd worked with Big Four and also run their own businesses as well. And, and for me, I was advised that if you really want to understand how businesses operate at that granular level, then you need to go work in industry and you need to be in there with the accounts payable team and understanding what they do at, at, at month end and, and throughout the month. Um, and outside of finance, you get exposure to all the other departments and understand their role that they play in the business. And I think that would be a lot more difficult in big four to get that level of exposure to say the marketing team or to some extent the sales team, you know, and I've spent most of my career uh, partnering with the sales and marketing team on a daily basis, you know, trying to understand what they need from me acting as an advisor. Whereas working in industry and commercial like I have, I've had to engage Big Four um, for many reasons on many occasions. And they, you know, most of the time, don't speak to the sales or marketing team unless it's, <laughs> unless we're going through, you know, some sort of sale and it's, it's sort of part of the DD or, you know, we need to bring in some of the sales guys to articulate the sales process to Big Four for acting as, as a DD advisor. But yeah, planned uh, for sure and loved it, haven't looked back. And, and from Rio Tinto, now transition to high tech, how did that come through? Well, actually, before I got into tech, I actually left Rio Tinto after one year in their graduate program. And the reason, why, reason for that is I decided quickly I didn't want to work in coal. 
and I saw the coal price bottoming out. A young, naive, uh, scared graduate thought, okay, well, I need to, I don't want to be in accounting. I don't want to work for coal. The coal price is bottoming out. You know, they're making all these redundancies. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, in retrospect, it wasn't, probably wasn't the wisest decision, but you know, no, no regrets because it's taken me on a, a really amazing path. But I actually started working for a company called Intigen. And this was kind of a turning point in my career because I started, I went straight into their FP&A team and their FP&A the team looked after treasury, cash flow, and the company was project financed by a syndicate of a mixture of banks and global private equity firms. So when it came to refinancing the debt, um, or anything exciting like that. It was all done internally by the FP&A team. So let's take a couple of steps back. So Intigen is a, a power generation company. At the time, I know they were owned by China Huanang Group, which is a, a Chinese power generation company, and also Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. They had assets all around the world, and they had a couple of power plants in Queensland. And so I was based in their business office and looking after the FP&A piece for their um, two Australian assets. But as I said, that was a defining point in my career because I had an absolute gun of a boss and colleagues um, in my FP&A team that, funnily enough, came from Big Four in the deals teams, um, and they were brilliant. They sort of set a quality standard for my output. And I've stuck to that ever since. And my boss at the time, he was doing his MBA at University of Sydney. He was just about to welcome his second child and he was trying to run the debt refinancing. So I saw him juggling all this and doing a really good job of it. So that kind of set a new work ethic standard for me. So after two and a half years at Intergen, I had amazing leaders that set quality uh, and work ethic standards for me that gave me the confidence to then say, you know what, let's go over to one of the super cities like London because in places like London and, you know, some of the largest cities in the United States, you can pick where you want to work. It's a candidate's market, at least compared to the Australian cities. And I wanted to work in tech in particular in the software space. So, and my wife works in uh, fashion. So, you know, London was perfect for her. So we packed our bags in um, 2016, early 2016, moved to London and my first role over there was with a company called Travelport. Interesting. Yeah. So Travelport is a, their core product is a global distribution system. So essentially what that is, is if you are an airline or a hotel, uh, you want to have your tickets available for travel agents all around the world, not just travel agents within your country. So British Airways, take British Airways as an example. British Airways is linked into Travelport's GDS, which is a kind of a, a mixture of hardware and software. And then this GDS system has all the tickets, airline tickets and room nights in the world that the travel agents, no matter where they are, can hook in. And so revenue came from the airlines and hotels. Part of that revenue was passed on to the travel agent and then Travelport kept that margin. That was their sort of core business. There was Travelport, Amadeus. Sabre. Sabre, that's it. So there's yeah. the three of them that were, were and I think still are the three main GBS. Sabre is pretty big, like I think $6 billion in revenue, some, something like that. Yeah, they do a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And so does Amadeus. But Travelport was very, their thing was to be focused really in on um, GDS and, and other 
travel tech and there were there were an American company listed on I think at the time they were on New York Stock Exchange they're not anymore which is another part of the story we can get into but I was based in a Slough office it's hard to describe Slough but to a global audience it's it look it's an industrial park right so Slough has lots of big offices but that's that's about it not much else and and it's about uh, an hour and a bit west of, of London. So I was in that office, but I lived in the center of London. Wow, like a two-hour drive then. I caught the train, but it was, yeah, it was it was kind of like a, a baptism of fire, you know, getting up in that <laughs> cold London weather to leave beautiful Paddington in central London, go out to Slough. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it was my foot into the market. Um, I had another amazing boss and team around me. And it was a good start for me to learn about how they did business over there. But I was only with the parent for 18 months and one of the directors moved over to a travel payments scale-up that was owned by Travelport. And I went with him to help build out their commercial finance and FP&A team. And that was... That was the first... Um, so you moved back with that uh, payment scale-up, moved back to Brisbane? No, no, moved into central London. So they had their office oh. based in central London. And yeah, it was the most unique environment. My first exposure to uh, a true scale-up and that environment where everyone knows everyone, there's a beer fridge, there's a table tennis table, everyone loves what they're doing, everyone works really, really hard, everyone plays really, really hard, and the business is you know flush with cash. They're able to pivot. Anyone who has an idea can come forward and give that idea. You know, going to work was fun, and a lot of the time you didn't want to leave. So that was that was uh, yeah my first venture into that style of of company, and and I haven't really looked back. You know, ever I've worked since, I've sought out companies like that because why not? You know, yeah. That's high tech. That's, you know, work hard, play hard, uh, have a fridge full of beer cans and then, you know, chug it whenever you want and, you know, go back to work. That's absolutely amazing. And when did you come back to Brisbane? Well, I didn't come back until October 2021. So when I was at Enid, I, w- I had the pleasure of working on their sale to Wex, which is based in the US. So with that experience, I, I moved over to Reward Gateway. And at Reward Gateway, um, I started off as their head of FP&A. And by the time I left, I was the finance director with a team of 20 right across sort of operational finance systems, sales ops, and FP&A. And while I was there, we guided them through change of ownership to new P&E owners. And, you know, they'd, they'd been, this is, I think, their fourth or fifth P&E partners that was kind of their thing that's the way they were funded and you know I had to make the decision along with my wife do we do we stick around for another you know another four-year cycle or do we do we go home and I think after seven years living across London and Paris it was time to time to come home so yeah we we ended up coming back from London in, in October last year. Got it and what is your team like like what's your team structure at F4S right now? Well, it's it's lean. So I'm the I'm the first permanent payrolled finance team member. I've got an absolutely amazing bookkeeper. I don't like calling her bookkeeper because she does a lot more than that. 
you know, I'd probably uh, think she advertises herself as a bookkeeper, but she's, you know, she's more of a financial controller. She's known the CEO for many, many years. Yeah, she's been an absolute godsend uh, over the last few weeks. Um, I am taking over from the former sort of CFO slash advisor who's now going to be in an advisory role. And I don't think we're going to add or build out this finance team until probably another 12 months. You know, we've got a pretty clear plan on the areas that we want to invest in over the next 12 months. As I said, we, you know, just received funding a couple of months ago and, you know, we've got an amazing product and I feel like we have a lot of our ducks in a row, but the one area where we now need to shift focus is on driving driving sales, is, is getting this product out there because it is, it is incredible and it's, you know, I'm surprised every day that there aren't more people using it. So, yeah, we want to make quite a bit of investment in on the sales and marketing side. You know, part of my role is to put uh, in place a sales stack for um, the team to use uh, and that includes, you know, Salesforce, Salesloft and Chargebee as well. So, yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the midst of that at the moment. So it's very, as you'd expect from, from a scale-up, you know, it's very broad and good mix of the audit, tax and uh, sales and strategic thinking. And that, that's the way, you know, that's the way I like it. Yeah, pretty interesting. You mentioned Chargebee. I was at Chargebee before what I'm doing right now. And I think back then we had our first Aussie hire. Yeah. Uh, a girl got hired and she started building the office. Uh, they have good presence now. So amazing. Yeah, absolutely. How has your role evolved? So from Rio Tinto to now, are you doing the same things what you were doing earlier, but the scale has become magnified? 100x or is it more strategic more you know high tech is different than let's say coal and power it is more strategic i mean first of all rio tinto and, and intergen with it they were massive massive organizations and they're the way that they're structured is unique to them as opposed to all the other businesses i've worked for they're their structure and the way um, the type of work you do is more identifiable. It's similar from one company to another. And I think you are people are staff are forced to be more strategic and commercial in their thinking these days than in the past because businesses want to get more out of their people. And at the same time, people want to be closer to those strategic decisions. So probably in my first role in, in London at Travelport is when I had to you know, force myself to start thinking a lot more at that higher level and big picture as opposed to thinking about what journals am I going to post this month end and, and you know what do I look out for. It's now in addition to that, you need to think big picture and think about what you're doing on a daily basis, whether or not it fits in with the overall strategic goals of the business. And you know, I've had interns and, and, and juniors reporting into me and even even in what they do now, you know, they need to think about, they need to take a step back and think about why is it they're doing what they're doing and how does it fit in? So I feel that these days that is very much how my role has changed and, and, and a lot of roles within finance have changed. And that's only over a period of, so, you know, 10 to 12 years. I was going to say, it's not, it's not surprising, you know, they're, they're wanting to get Businesses are wanting to get more and more out of their staff and and staff are wanting variety. Yeah, it's out with the old and in with this new 
uh, way of working. And I think there's more and more and more startups these days and people are getting a taste of, they're getting a taste of this common sense, logical way of working where (laughs) if you need to go and pick up your grandma to take her to a doctor's appointment, you don't need to go and seek permission from, you know, every man and his dog. Let's approach things with logic and common sense. And and I've carried that on as well onto my teams. If, if you're doing a good job, you can come in and leave whenever you want, as long as you're getting the work done and you're doing a good job of it. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of my take on how you know, the roles, especially within finance have evolved and, and how my roles evolved. Yeah, Australian startup scene has evolved quite a bit. I, I think 10 years ago, the only company I remembered at that time was Atlassian. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think Australia is probably still a good 10, 15 years behind London in that space. I know Atlassian are trying really hard and Canva, trying really hard to Canva, change. Canva, yeah. How can you forget Canva? Yeah, they're absolutely trying hard to, to change that. Um, so, there's a, uh, for example, there's a, a government initiative being led by Atlassian in Sydney where there's a section of, of the city if you are a tech startup and you want to have an office there, then the government will subsidize your rent by quite a significant amount. So the idea is to, to create this sort of tech hub, you know, and, and I think Australia will, if they keep doing things like that, if, if we have these companies like Atlassian and, and Canva stepping in and playing the lead role there, then, yeah, there's massive room for, for Australia to, to, to grow in that space and, and catch up to the likes of London. I remember when I was at Chargebee, initiated a partnership with Zero. Yeah. And uh, that, that was huge. I Until that time, I did not realize how big Zero was, not just yeah. in Australia, but across the globe. But other than three, are there bigger companies uh, like Atlassian, Canva, Zero? I don't know anybody else, to be honest. Oh, I just had a couple in my head. Um, payment, Afterpay, payment company? Well, is that Australia? Enet, the, the payments company that I work for, was actually started out of Melbourne, a guy called Anthony Hines. And that sort of turned into to, to a unicorn. But of course, that's now been absorbed by Wex. But there's, I think it's called Swift, SwiftX as well. So there's, there's quite a few crypto businesses that have come through that are now trying to take over take over the world you've got technology one they are kind of like netsuite their platform does a little bit of extra you know they're based here in brisbane actually they're on the the australian stock exchange you've got clipchamp they're based in brisbane as well they were bought by microsoft not that long ago you've got a, a, a quite a solid community here in brisbane so brisbane is the second largest after sydney or there's melbourne also in that Three. Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Okay. Yeah. So I think Sydney, Melbourne are pretty good. They've got lots of capital floating around and um, quite a healthy startup spa- uh, hubs. Um, Brisbane, on the other hand, at least before I moved over to the UK, had, had nothing. But since coming back, there's been, uh, over the pandemic, there's been lots of high net worths from Sydney and Melbourne relocate to Queensland. Um, a lot of them are living here in Brisbane and they've started um, their own VC funds and they're really trying to push to get to attract exciting businesses to Brisbane. We've got Steve Baxter's based in Brisbane. He um, He's done a lot in the startup space. He runs his own venture firm and he was one of the panelists on Australia's version of Shark Tank, you know, and he's a massive massive driver of uh, this space in Brisbane and, and, and attracting more investment and businesses to Brisbane and, and Southeast Queensland. 
Interesting. I'm going to change gears and want to ask you some more questions around your work and your work habits. So a CFO's job or a finance leader's job is like super intense. You know, as you mentioned earlier, you deal with sales and marketing, you have customers and, and their revenue has to come in. So, and then of course, employees asking you for approvals and payments to be made. Is the five week day a norm or you're 24 by seven with some downtime or interspersed? How do you manage all of this? Well, you've got to enjoy it. That's the first and most important piece. How do I manage it? You know, at the moment I've, I've you know, it's, it's a little bit different because I'm in addition to juggling all the day to day, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about, you know, the business and, and the people and what makes them tick. I think for me, and this kind of draws on to where I think the finance team's going, I think the best way to manage and juggle everything is to think about what your role is in the business strategically. So if you really try and break it down, um, the finance leader needs to make sure that we have enough cash, right? So we need to make sure we're collecting cash on time. And then secondly, we need to make sure that we're paying those that we need to pay so that our services that we're paying for don't get shut off. If you start with that, make sure that you've got the cash there, the working capital, and you monitor that, that actually covers a lot of your list of to-dos and things you need to look at on a day-to-day basis. Secondly, I would say is uh, making the most of automation. So using the charge bees, the zeros, third-party bookkeepers as much as possible, and even the sales tech stack. If you have Salesforce right, it's massively helpful for a SaaS business when it comes to dealing with that deferred revenue beast. So being able to think strategically and operate strategically and then implementing automation as much as possible. Uh, and I'd say the third thing is, you know, you, you need to really enjoy what you do because, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not a nine to five gig. You know, I think if you're leading a, a part of the business, you kind of don't get that luxury of being able to turn everything off at five. You know, there's there's other, for example, yesterday we had, a fraud scare that was after hours that I had to address, you know, and there's, there's no one else that's going to address that. So nine to five is definitely not, you know, the way it's done. You need to really enjoy what you're doing to the point where it's not a job. And I know that sounds quite corny and, and cliche, but I think <laughs> as you get older and as you get more experience, you realize that all those cliches that you hear of the year, years, there's a reason why they're, they're cliches. There's a reason why it's because a lot of them make absolute sense. So yeah, love your job so that it isn't a job. Try and automate as much as possible so you can spend more time thinking strategically. And thirdly, if you've got a list that's 100 or 200 items long, take a step back and think, you know, what's the purpose of my role here? Well, the number one purpose is to keep us solvent with cash so we can do everything else. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that, you know, learning is important. You know, you got to keep learning as you grow in your career. How do you learn? Do you read? Do you follow blogs, podcasts, or books? Anything that you could recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I um, do quite a bit of reading. Um, actually, there's a book I've got right here. I like to read, um, and this is the funny, you might laugh at this, you know, coming from the FPNA and commercial side, you know, I hadn't had much exposure over the years to the commercial, uh, the, the audit and, and tax piece, but, and I say that I wouldn't enjoy it. But when it comes to reading, that's all I read is books about 
how to run the best month end, what to look for when you're working out your taxable income, what are the sort of the things that you need to watch out for, how to structure an accounts payable and an accounts receivable team. There's a book, it's a really basic book, but I recommend it for anyone who anyone who's sort of had a similar path to me in the in the planning side of finance, the planning and analysis side. If they want to if they want to break in to the other side, you need to start reading some of these books. And there's a book called um, How to Do Month-End Accounting Procedures, step-by-step guide. It's very small. It's by Sterling Libs. And, yeah, it's been an absolute godsend for me. It gives you the basics that you can then go and build off and do some deeper research in. But outside of that, you know, there's you definitely don't know everything in these sorts of roles, you know, there's no way you could. I think it's impossible to step into a finance director or CFO role and be the master of all things finance. Um, So I find that I'm constantly having to step away and dig deeper into certain bits and pieces that come across my desk. And the the, the beauty of the internet and the enormous amount of content out there is that we, you know, we have lots of resources from LinkedIn Learning, um, through to, you know, YouTube. And I think, um, you know, one thing I actually enjoy reading is the SEO content. I know they've put SEO content out there in the form of blogs to drive your Google rankings. You know, some businesses like Chargebee and Canva and Atlassian, um, they put together some really great pieces that often answer really difficult questions for me in my space. So, yeah, that really is all-consuming. Uh, I'd like to say that I take the time out to read fantasy novels but unfortunately um <laughs> unfortunately i don't i think any any spare time i get I'm, I'm usually hanging out with my family or watching rugby or, or playing golf i think that's equally as important as upskilling on the technical side i, I agree with you i think yes there's so much you want to read but at the same time downtime is important because that's how you absorb what you've read so amazing on that as we wrap up this conversation with you brett I'd love to get to know what you think of the economic conditions. And I'm sure you watch and read the news about the markets, you know, valuations in tech are down by 50, 60% from the peak of uh, this year. Where do you think the world is growing or going to? This valuations piece I find interesting because if everyone's valuations are down, are they really less valuable than what they were before? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uncharted territory for everyone really. I think if we we dug ourselves in too much of a bigger hole, I don't think that our leaders around the world have the guts to let that explode or or, or implode um, economically. I think think we'll probably see more Band-Aid or or plaster fixes for some of the problems, (laughs) at least for the next sort of five years. and, And then perhaps another, probably not to the extent of the GFC, but another similar incident occurring. I mean, for me, I try not to think too much about how the market is going to impact FRS because, and the same at Reward Gateway as well, we we were very quick to pivot and show people that with everything that's going on, we're actually trying to help. Uh, when I was at Reward Gateway, the platform that we had was perfect for people working remotely. It enabled people to connect with one another. So, you know, in a time where we're all being locked away and sort of screaming out for connection, you know, Reward Gateway was there offering um, very well-priced SaaS platform to make that happen. I think with FRS as well, ever since the GFC, you know, companies have 
tightening have tightened and they continue to tighten their hiring criteria and their budgets are getting smaller. So, you know, a company like FRS um, can help you for minimal cost to really work out whether or not this candidate is the right fit for your business. So the point I'm getting at is, is you know, the way the economy is, if it's up or down, it just presents new opportunities for us and, and, and the way that we position ourselves strategically um, in the market. And I guess on a personal sense, I'm, you know, try and hoard as much cash and, and make as many safe investments as possible on the basis that, you know, in the next five years, there could very well be another GFC type incident around the corner. So there's not much else you can do there other than save um, and pivot, give yourself the ability to pivot professionally and personally. Beautiful. Thanks for that quote uh, on the cash part. And of course, uh, the value does not change, only the valuations are changing. So amazingly put. So with that, we wrap up our conversation with Brett. Brett, thank you for your time. It was great chatting with you today. Yeah, absolutely. You've you forced me to think about things that I you know, probably haven't thought about before. So I feel like I need to go back to the drawing board. Um, you've given me some some good ideas. And yeah, I really appreciate you um, you know, taking the time and, and grilling me on my career and what I've done and how I do things. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Chief Future Officer Podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and it'd be amazing if you could share this with anyone who may find this interesting. That's me, Indus from Kolam, signing off. See you in the next episode.